Welcome to the JPGN podcast for October 2009. I'm James Liu. This podcast will outline selected articles from this month's issue of the Journal of Pediatric Gastroenterology and Nutrition. For more information and to access the complete articles, please visit us online at www.jpgn.org or visit our society webpage at www.naspagan.org. Our first article is entitled Gangliosides Protect Bowel in an Infant Model of Necrotizing Enterocolitis by Suppressing Pro-Inflammatory Signals by Schnabel et al. Necrotizing enterocolitis has a high morbidity in premature infants. Risk factors for neck include hypoxia ischemia, infection, and enteral feeding, while feeding human milk is believed to be protective. The vasoactive and inflammatory mediators that play a role in necrotizing enterocolitis have not been well characterized. As gangliosides are found in both human milk as well as in enterocyte membranes, the authors in this study postulate that gangliosides in fact play a role in modulating the inflammatory response to infection and hypoxia. To test this hypothesis, the researchers created an infant bowel model of necrotizing enterocolitis. Specifically, the authors took viable, non-inflamed bowel from nine infants between 26 and 40 weeks gestational age and treated these samples in culture with E. coli lipopolysaccharide and hypoxia in the presence or absence of pre-exposure to gangliosides. Bowel necrosis and production of nitric oxide, endothelin-1, serotonin, eicosanoids, hydrogen peroxide, and pro-inflammatory cytokines were then measured. The authors found that pre-exposure to gangliosides reduced bowel necrosis and endothelin-1 production in response to lipopolysaccharide. Moreover, gangliosides suppressed infant bowel production of nitric oxide, leukotriene B4, prostaglandin E2, hydrogen peroxide, interleukin-1-beta, interleukin-6, and interleukin-8 in response to lipopolysaccharide exposure and hypoxia. With these findings, the authors concluded that gangliosides have a bowel protective effect, and that this effect is indicated by modulation of vasoactive mediators and pro-inflammatory signal suppression. Our next article is entitled, Treatment with High-Dose Proton Pump Inhibitors Helps Distinguish Eosinophilic Esophagitis from Non-Eosinophilic Esophagitis, by Saez et al. Eosinophilic esophagitis is a clinical entity that is increasingly recognized in children. The treatment of EE has been debated since its identification as a clinical entity separate from reflux esophagitis. The investigators hypothesized that treatment with high-dose proton pump inhibitors helps differentiate EE from non-EE. The study consisted of a retrospective review of 2,221 patients who underwent esophagogastroduodenoscopy with biopsies. 69 patients had 15 or more eosinophils per high-power field in one or more esophageal levels. Of those, 36 were initially treated with high-dose proton pump inhibitor for three months followed by repeat EGD. Patients who demonstrated histologic response were classified as non-eosinophilic esophagitis. Patients with no histologic response were diagnosed with EE and treated with high-dose proton pump inhibitor plus swallowed fluticasone for three months followed by repeat EGD. The results showed that of the 36 patients, histologic response was seen in 14, or 39%, 
after treatment with high-dose proton pump inhibitor. Swallowed fluticasone was added to the treatment of the 22 patients who did not show histologic response to high-dose proton pump inhibitor alone. Of those, 15 patients underwent repeat endoscopies. Seven patients were lost to follow-up or did not have repeat EGDs. Histologic response was observed in 9 of 15 patients, or 60%. Of the six non-responders, 5 of 6, or 83%, self-reported non-compliance with the swallowed fluticasone. 25 of 36 patients had over 15 eosinophils per high-power field at all three levels and were less likely to respond to high-dose proton pump inhibitor alone and more likely to be categorized as EE. Symptomatically, 28 of 36 patients reported resolution of symptoms after high-dose proton pump inhibitor therapy alone, regardless of histology. Visual endoscopic findings during the first and second EGDs did not show any significance in differentiating EE from non-eosinophilic esophagitis. The study demonstrates that high-dose proton pump inhibitor can be used to help differentiate EE from non-eosinophilic esophagitis histologically. Moreover, Patients with 15 or more eosinophils per high-power field at all three levels are less likely to respond to high-dose proton pump inhibitor than patients with 15 or more eosinophils per high-power field in fewer than three levels. Therefore, having 15 or more eosinophils per high-power field at one or two biopsy levels does not necessarily establish the diagnosis of EE. Symptomatic response to high-dose proton pump inhibitor does not correlate with histological findings. Clinical management guided by EGD with biopsy helps distinguish patients with EE from those with non-eosinophilic esophagitis. Our next article is entitled, Use and Safety of Rifaximin in Children with Inflammatory Bowel Disease by Muniapa et al. The authors studied the antibiotic rifaximin, which has been used in adults with IBD in a retrospective review of children with inflammatory bowel disease. 23 patients with IBD who had been treated with rifaximin between 2005 and 2007 were identified. 12 had Crohn's disease and 11 had ulcerative colitis. The median age was 13 years and common complaints included diarrhea in 87%, abdominal pain in 74%, and hematochesia in 65%. These children were given rifaximin at doses of 10 to 30 milligrams per kilogram. Of the 20 patients with diarrhea, 25% had relief within one week and 60% had relief within four weeks of starting rifaximin. Of the 17 patients with abdominal pain, 18% had relief within one week and 71% within four weeks. Of the 15 patients with bloody stools, 67% had resolution within four weeks of starting rifaximin. The authors looked at the use of other medications and found that 61% of patients experienced relief when the addition of rifaximin was the only change in treatment. They also found statistical evidence that larger doses of rifaximin were more likely to produce resolution in abdominal pain. The authors conclude that rifaximin is safe and produces favorable results in pediatric IBD, and that further studies should be performed to define dosing and establish efficacy. Our next article is entitled, Association of IL-23 Receptor P381 Glutamine and ATG16L1P197 Alanine with Crohn's Disease in the Czech Population, by 
Dusadkova et al. An association of variants in the genes encoding the interleukin-23 receptor and the autophagy-related gene 16-like-1 with Crohn's disease was identified by whole genome association studies and confirmed by other works. The aim of this study was to assess this association in the Czech population. A case control study of 333 Crohn's patients consisting of 137 pediatric and 196 adult onset, as well as 499 healthy controls, were genotyped using the TACMAN SNP assays. The results show that the IL-23 receptor P381 glutamine allele was protective against Crohn's in the Czech population. The ATG16L1P197 alanine allele conferred increased risk of Crohn's disease. The variants of these alleles did not influence the age at diagnosis. In the genotype-phenotype analysis, the only detected association was a weak one between the IL-23 receptor and involvement of the upper GI tract. This study confirms the role of IL-23 receptor and ATG16L1 in Crohn's disease susceptibility in the Czech population with a weak protective effect of the IL-23 receptor allele against upper GI tract involvement. Our next article is entitled, Selective Use of Endoscopic Retrograde Cholangiopancreatography in Diagnosis of Biliary Atresia in Infants Younger Than 100 Days by Shanmugam et al. The objective of this retrospective investigation was to determine the role and safety of ERCP in diagnosing biliary atresia among neonates with prolonged cholestasis. The authors of the study performed a chart review among 3,300 cholestatic infants less than 100 days of life from 1997 to 2000. During this period, 224, or 6.8% of them, were definitively diagnosed with biliary atresia by exploratory laparotomy. 48 of the total 3,300 subjects were evaluated by ERCP. Among the 48 infants, 47 also underwent liver biopsies. This 47 had the following breakdown. 40% had nonspecific cholestasis, 26% had giant cell hepatitis, 19% had large bile duct obstruction, and 15% had mixed cholestatic hepatic features. Also, among the 48 who had an ERCP, 20 were shown to have patent biliary trees by standard cannulation of the sphincter of Odi. Among these 20 subjects, 17% had normal biliary anatomy, but 25% had abnormal biliary trees, including 12.5% of them having neonatal sclerosing cholangitis. Three of the 48 subjects who failed cannulation at the time of ERCP were all confirmed with the diagnosis of biliary atresia at the time of exploratory laparotomy. The remaining 25 of 48 subjects went on to have exploratory laparotomy as well, and 22 of them were confirmed to have biliary atresia. None of the subjects who had an ERCP developed complications such as clinical pancreatitis or peritonitis. The authors concluded from this study that ERCP is a safe modality to aid in the diagnosis of biliary atresia with high positive and negative predictive values even in small infants. Our next article is entitled, Ethnic and Gender Differences in the Association Between Metabolic Syndrome and Suspected Non-Alcoholic Fatty Liver Disease in a Nationally Representative Sample of U.S. Adolescents by Graham Marr et al. 
Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is increasingly recognized among overweight adolescents. Metabolic syndrome often coexists in adults. This study aimed to determine if metabolic syndrome increases the odds of an ALT of over 40, a marker for NAFLD, among U.S. adolescents. A cross-sectional study of 12 to 19-year-olds from the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey from 1999 to 2002 was used. Subjects were excluded for incomplete data, pregnancy, steroid or hepatotoxic drug use, cholestasis or viral hepatitis, and alcohol intake. Metabolic syndrome was defined by adult criteria adapted for pediatric body size and blood pressure. The association of metabolic syndrome with ALT of over 40, effect modifiers, and confounders were analyzed using NHANES sampling weights. Of 4,902 adolescents, 1,323 were included. Metabolic syndrome was associated with ALT of over 40 with significant interaction by gender for males versus females. Further stratification of males suggested interaction by ethnicity for Hispanics versus non-Hispanics. Among Hispanic males, adjustment for body mass index z-score explained the association while it did not among non-Hispanic males. Metabolic syndrome is strongly associated with ALT of over 40 in U.S. male adolescents. Body mass index z-scores explain this association among Hispanic but not among non-Hispanic males. Significant gender and ethnic differences exist in the association of pediatric metabolic syndrome with elevated ALT. Our next article is entitled, Relationship Between Adiposity and Disease Risk Factors in Mexican-American Children by McFarlane et al. Excess adiposity is associated with systemic low-grade inflammation, which has been implicated in the pathophysiology of various diseases. The purpose of this study was to examine the relationship between measures of adiposity and disease risk factors in Mexican-American children participating in a weight loss intervention. 170 boys and girls with an average age of 13.3 years volunteered for additional testing from a larger study that demonstrated significant reduction in standardized body mass index. Insulin, CRP, SCD14, glucose, and cholesterol profile were all assessed. Linear mixed models regression showed that changes in adiposity were significantly related with changes in total cholesterol, triglycerides, CRP, insulin, and HDL. The relationship between measures of adiposity and disease risk factors was stable over time in children participating in an exercise weight loss intervention. Also, the findings indicate that reducing adiposity results in an improvement of blood disease risk factors in Mexican-American children. Our final article is a short communication entitled Maternal HLA Class 1 Compatibility in Patients with Biliary Atresia by Irie et al. Biliary atresia is an inflammatory cholangiopathy of unknown etiology. Maternal microchimerism was reported in the livers of patients with biliary atresia. The authors analyzed human leukocyte antigen compatibility between 57 biliary atresia patient mother pairs and 50 control mother pairs. The HLA class 1 matching was significantly more frequent in biliary atresia pairs than controls. 
Similar results were also found in child-to-mother HLA compatibility. These results indicate that patients with biliary atresia have an immunogenetic histocompatible relationship with their mothers, which may result in the increase in maternal microchimerism found in biliary atresia. This concludes the JPGN podcast for October 2009. Also of note, the Pediatric Gastroesophageal Reflux Clinical Practice Guidelines also appear in this month's issue of JPGN. These are the official recommendations of NASPGAN and ESPGAN. The executive producer of the JPGN podcast is Daniel Gelfond. The editor-in-chief of JPGN is Eric Sibley. The JPGN podcast is recorded by the Pediatric GI Fellows of Stanford University. For more information and to access the full articles, please visit us online at www.jpgn.org or visit our society webpage at www.naspagan.org. I'm James Liu.